The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Kia ora, I'm Jane Yee and welcome to This Is Kiwi, a podcast series brought to you by Kiwi Bank and the Spin-Off Podcast Network. In this series, I'll meet with incredible New Zealanders who've achieved remarkable things, uncovering what makes them tick and the influences that have helped to shape their ideas. Most importantly, This Is Kiwi will bring you knowledge for better. The incredible power of determination, passion and self-belief that we can all learn from and apply to our own lives every day. So join me on this unique journey as we celebrate the Kiwi spirit and learn what it takes to make a difference. This is Kiwi, where ordinary people do extraordinary things. Today, for our final episode of season one of This Is Kiwi, I'm talking with Kitty Nathan, a multi-talented and internationally acclaimed fashion designer whose work is deeply rooted in te ao Māori, with a focus on natural fibres and texture. In 2020, Kitty was made a member of the New Zealand Order of Merit for services to Māori and the fashion industry, and her work extends far beyond our shores. You've probably seen her designs on the like of Jacinda Ardern, Barack and Michelle Obama, Meghan Markle, Beyonce, Ed Sheeran and Mariah Carey, just to name a few. But Kitty's heart is in Aotearoa, where she will become the first Māori designer to open New Zealand Fashion Week later this year. Alongside Kitty's trailblazing spirit is a passion for sharing her wisdom and experience to empower emerging Māori designers. This kaupapa has been a key focus of Kitty's for a number of years and most recently saw her establishing Te Ahuru Mōwai, a creative safe haven for young Indigenous designers in her home turf of Gleninus in Tamaki Makoto. Sharing a studio with Kitty, there's an air of strength and tenacity about her that's pretty awe-inspiring. It's hard to believe she's achieved so much in the 13 years since she launched her label. Truly, I mean it when I say there's not enough time for me to list off all the many projects she's involved with and the accolades she's received. Because what I really wanted to do in talking with Kitty is find out how she got from there to here, what drives her to break through barriers and lead the way for the next generation of Māori designers. I'm telling you now, there's plenty we can all learn from this kōrero, particularly when it comes to pursuing our goals with resilience and integrity. There's really no finer example of those two characteristics than Kitty Nathan. Right now on This Is Kiwi. Kitty Nathan, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. Um, I've been really looking forward to chatting with you and... You've achieved so many things, such amazing things in in your life and career so far. There's still plenty more to go. But I want to start by looking back at little Kitty. Tell me me a little bit about what you were like as a wee thing. Um, As a young child, like as in like five, six, seven. Yeah, go on, wherever wherever you want to start. Yeah, okay. Um, I was always active. Um, I loved creativity from a very, very young age and was encouraged by my grandmother to do all manner of things. She'd always buy me um, those little crafty kits, you know, that you could do things with and she taught me how to sew. Um, Mum was a sewer as well. So um, all of that sort of like creative energy was around. I was really happy. I was a happy little kid. Uh, we lived in New Zealand and in Scotland at that age, or actually from when I was born until I was about eight or nine. Because your dad had an interesting job? Yeah, so dad raced um, professional speedway. And so we would go for six months of the year for the season in Scotland. And I'd always go back to the same school over there and the same friends and so forth and then come back to New Zealand. So, um, yeah, it was a really good childhood. And then I think moving along to around about 10, 
2011 when we settled back in New Zealand in Glen Innes, I think that the transition was uh, challenging. Mum and dad separated and there was a breakdown in the Fano unit, mm. if you know what I mean. And so things kind of went in a different direction and I really found that um, my friend group and creativity was the thing that gave me release. Yeah. Was Grandma still around at this point? Was she was she living with you guys or was she nearby? Yeah, well, um, when Mum and Dad decided to take care of their own mental health, <laughs> uh, I went to go live with Grandma. Okay. Yeah, so I was 13 and um, stayed with her for about a year and then bopped in between Mum and Dad. And so that she's obviously a significant, mm. you know, figure in your life, um, personally, obviously, and took on role as main caregiver, but also had a huge influence on your creativity. But we'll get we'll get to her a bit later on. Um, I want to know about how significant Gleninus or GI is as a place to you. I think because it shaped it was the place that shaped my childhood. Although we lived in Scotland, um, you know, most of my formative years were spent in GI, Pamua, Mount Wellington. Mm-hmm. Um, Point England, and I went to the local schools there. Um, but most significantly, my friend group was from there. So I'm still best friends with, you know, my friends since I was seven years old or six years old or even five years old, to be honest. And um, we went right through our schooling together. We played all our um, sports, all our rep sports together and, you know, made all our ridiculous teenage decisions together and then became mums and, you know, got married and, and now we're here, we're really old. And <laughs> you are not. We're still sort of like, you know, we're still the best of friends. Yeah. So I think that formed most of my memories and great times and challenging times. You know, it, it all sort of culminated around GI. Yeah. You know, we were, we were this weird little spot in the middle of, um, we were completely surrounded by affluent you know, areas, yeah. and we were a low socioeconomic mm-hmm. area, working class, and um, with that came a lot of um, social challenges, and so we all grew up in that, and we all understood it, and I find even today that um, unless you've lived that, it's very hard to understand it mm. and understand the psyche and mindset that comes from growing up in a place like that. How do you think that it's impacted your journey? Uh, loyalty is very, very important to me. I say this all the time and I don't think it even makes sense in this century, but not being a fathead, (laughs) like just, you know, um, walking through life and trying to help the, you know, do the neighborly thing and help the person who's, who's, who's next to you or, um, I don't know, like, I think loyalty always comes to mind. Um, being able to identify good friendship and things that are healthy for you and relationships that are probably not healthy for you. Yeah. I think that was a big thing growing up there. Uh, learning how to survive on very little mm. and how to, I guess, use entrepreneurialism to uh, create an income. And, yeah, community. You learn something really, really special about community when you move out of that space. Yeah. Because when you're in it, it's just so normalised. It's you don't... just what you, it's all you know, right? Our son just bought his first house back in GI, so we're pretty happy. And we've obviously got Te Ahuru Mōwai, our operations yes. and showroom, back in GI. It's really nice to be. Tell me about that. Tell me about about setting up back there. Uh, well, it, it really started with, well, actually, 
Um, it's always been a dream of mine to be able to have the uh, Buxton leather premise. Ah, yes. I, I used to walk past that as a young girl uh, after primary school. It was like the outlet shop, right? Well, it was their product. Oh, like, they had the outlet shop. And they've got the outlet that, shop right. now. Um, but back in the day, they had a small retail store and then they had their production. So it's it was for years and years a dormant um, manufacturing spot. And I mean, that that road, Apirana um, Ave, was full of CMT mm. when I was growing mm. up. So you'd walk down that road and the hum of machines and... Mm. Many of our mums and aunties worked in there. So I've just always, yeah, I've always thought that's the first uh, building or or parkahi that you see when you come into GI. And it's actually surrounded by grass and nahire and a, a tiny little awa that runs through it that holds, uh, again, significant mm. pūrāko, um for the area. So, yeah, I've always wanted that space. Um, the... The whare that we're in right now um, was not up to compliance, so uh, they offered the space to us. Blew my mind. Jason and I, my husband Jason and I, sat there on little fold-out chairs and drew stick figures of, you know, how we imagined or how we reimagined that space to be. And I remember all the things that it's been over the years. And then, yeah, they brought the building up to compliance and our friends in whānau, same people that I was talking about earlier, they all came in for three months I'm talking like they. T- some people took days off work. People were in there every weekend with us, um, grinding concrete back, um, painting, building. Yeah, and we built it together. So, and you really feel that. And we moved in during Matariki. Uh, we had Karaki Awaidia, um with Nati Pawa and and some of the locals that we love. And it just everything felt right. That's so beautiful. Is really, really lovely. And you do feel it when you come in. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice. Oh, amazing. Congratulations. Thank um, you. Coming from where you come from, being a Māori woman, and I, I'm really curious to know what some of the barriers you've faced have been. And not just kind of the obvious ones that we know about, but I feel like in all industries, in all areas of life, there can be little barriers that other people just that aren't talked about, that we're not really aware of unless you're in it and unless you're experiencing it? Well, I, hand on heart, I feel like I've been underestimated my entire life. Um, and I'm sure that there's a million other people out there that have felt the same way as they've grown up. Um, and I always felt like I had to work extra hard mm. for things um, or to, yeah, be given opportunities that other people seem to have been given. However, that might have just been my mindset back then. I'm not too sure. But this is one of the barriers, right? Like the kind of the mindset that we have is informed by what's around us. We don't just get there on our own. We're not born with a, you know, with a limited mindset. Back in the day, if you entered a competition, you had to pay to enter the competition. You had to pay for all of your materials and so Mm -hmm. forth to make the piece. And then you had to pay for your ticket to go to the show. And, and you're a single mum at this point too. Oh, yes, yes, yes. But heaps of people were in, um, you know, different personal situations. Mm. And um, often we were asked during those periods to be the entertainment, I guess, for big corporate events where everyone would be seated and have three-course dinner and drinks and whatever and there'd be speakers and or it, it might have been a, a show. So we're bought in as the entertainment. We'd be bought in through the back door Again, there was no payments made um, to any of the designers. This is Māori and Pacifica designers mm. um, primarily. We would put on an event all at our own cost and then we would be taken out the back door. No one, I mean, in its simplest form, 
the people that were sitting at those tables were probably, you know, CEOs of huge businesses mm-hmm. or had been successful entrepreneurs. And in its simplest form, someone could have just said, I can give you an hour of my time mm-hmm. to talk to you about how you might be able to take this to the next level. But um, it, that just never happened. And so I talked to two designers in particular that I remember from, oh, three actually, from back in those days, Linda LePoe, Shona Tafio, and um, Zarina Wilson. And we used to do this, you know, competition circuit. And we have memories of the treatment of, you know, up and coming and emerging designers and creatives back then. And you sort of sit there and wonder why nobody ended up commercialising and making a business or an income for their whānau out of it. Those were the barriers and those were the reasons why. Those things that we talk about often, um, us four. <laughs> and however, now, one of the most, you know, one of the driving forces or purposes of our business or, you know, my life is to ensure that none of the Māori and Pacifica, or specifically at the moment, Māori designers that are coming through, ever have to experience those barriers. Mm. There's just no need for it. No. It was just so, it would have been so easy for people to help or just guide. Yeah, there's just a a really um, strong sense of responsibility to make the space better and for longer. Yeah. And how much of that comes from Mataranga Māori, like your, you know, your worldview from your heritage and what's important to you? I think that some of the viewpoint comes from growing up in GI. Mm -hmm. We all looked after each other. Um... And we all came up together. We played a lot of team sports together, and I think that there's a certain mindset and psyche that comes from that. Um, <clears throat> it is very Māori to want to bring more people with you. That I, I just don't see the point in creating a hugely successful business um, just for yourself. I, I just don't s- see the point in that. And unfortunately, that's how, well probably 99% of fashion businesses are structured. Mm. They do everything for the success of that business and their purpose and their values and so forth. And I just, as as a Māori or even any Indigenous person or any person that cares, (laughs) you know, I just don't see the point in that. So um, I just think it would be a waste of time giving 30 years of my life or 40 years of my life to something if it was just for me. Your name is, you know, your brand but it's not just Kitty Nathan. Who are the kind of key players in what makes Kitty Nathan successful as a business? Well, uh, like I said, we started the business 13 years ago. We had no idea what we were doing. I was actually doing a Tapuni Kōkiri business course uh, because when we decided to start the business, I, I knew absolutely nothing about business. I didn't know anything about the commercialization, the manufacture of a fashion brand. Mm. I, I knew nothing. I didn't even know how to make a logo. <laughs> so when we started, we just didn't know anything. So I did this Tapuni Kōkiri uh, business course. And through that course, they registered the business. That was li- like, they said, do you want to be a limited liability or a sole trader? I was like, I don't know what either of those <laughs> things are. <laughs> you tell I have me. no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> and we just spent, well, I spent actually years just trying to learn, like just not even re-educate myself, like educate myself mm. on how we're going to get this, how we were going to get this thing up and running. So there was the actual nuts and bolts of business that I needed to learn. There was the how do we manufacture these pieces? Where do we sell them? 
how do we sell them in a way that um, is safe? Because we're not just selling a top or a skirt, we're selling something that has been inspired by te ao Māori and therefore how do we make sure that we're keeping that safe? Um, and Jason always worked a corporate job. So we went, we'd made the decision that when we started the business that we would go down to this one wage. And at the time we had four of the five children living at home Actually, at the time that we started the business, we had three under three and a half. And so, you know, starting the business was almost like having another baby. Yeah. And that was some pretty challenging <laughs> times. So Jace went to work there and he always carved the ponamu, but he just didn't have capacity to do much else at that time. And that's sort of the way that things kind of rolled over the years. He was the best like the absolute sort of best support system that you could ask for. But he couldn't physically come in mm. because we couldn't let go of this safety net mm. of finance, you know, of finances for, for our entire whānau. And then it wasn't until 2021 um, when I took a year off to do full immersion te reo Māori at um, Tokiura that I was sort of six weeks into the, the wānanga and I was coming home and just like, rocking in the fetal position in the corner, just going, oh my God, I just, I, I just can't, I can't, I can't, everything's falling over at work. I, it ended up that I, um, I had gone for some funding support to hold the first Kahui mentorship program, which was a year-long mentorship, and I had to deliver it in the same year that I did Takiura. So there was just a lot on, and we'd put a little bit of money aside to hire someone to come in and maybe do some admin support, you know, answer some of the hundreds of emails that I wasn't able to get to. And Jason was coming home every day and just going, oh, my God, I hate going to this job every day. It's killing my soul. Like, I feel physically sick. And we were just lying in bed one night. We're like, why don't you come to work for us? Why don't we use this little bit of futia that gives you this much time to be able to um, you know, create enough work and generate enough putia to replace your pay and more and da-da-da-da. You're on trial, buddy. You yeah. This amount of time. <laughs> <laughs> this is what we've got to work with. And if you don't succeed, back to the office. So he came back and, yeah, so he came in in 2021. And then in 2022, we hired Shania Huriwai, um, no Ngāti Parau, and she was actually one of the tauira in my akumanga. And so... Um, it's been wonderful, but it's still a tiny team. And then we contract everybody else in. So, right. So yeah. is it sort of just the three of you? Three full-timers. And that's only been... In the last few For years. a year. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. And two of us for, well, two years, coming up two years now. Uh, yeah. It's really interesting to me um, as you speak and from what I've read, you seem to have a, you know, a passion to continue learning, even though you've, you know, arguably reached a point where you probably don't have to keep going back and, and learning things all the time. You could carry on with what you know and be continue to be successful, you know, but you're learning business skills. You know, um, earlier on, you, you know, you said you went to, to today immersion and did full immersion. Um, I also think it's part of our responsibility that if we're going out into the world, and for us in particular, um, running this Pākehi Māori, this, this Māori business that is based and steeped in te ao Māori, how can I, how can I honestly uh, do that with integrity if I haven't made an effort to learn my language 
it just got to that for me. And and like everyone to their own, like everyone has different um, journeys and perspectives and so forth. But f- for me, it was there's a responsibility here to do what I would consider to be the right thing. Mm. And um, and the kids, the kids started at Kohanga Reo and then they went through Catholic education because my grandma, my <laughs> <laughs> lovely grandma, was a staunch as like Catholic. Um, but in that process, they lost their reo. And so all of them are going to Takiura as soon as they finish. There's like, there's no option. <laughs> yes, Amazing. It's, yes. <laughs> so. That's cool. Te Ao Māori, I mean, obviously everyone who's listening will have picked up that Te Ao Māori are incredibly important to you, incredibly important to all Māori. Uh, but you've made a really conscious decision for that to be everything that your work is about, really. Yes and no, because I'm I'm really proud of, um, well, and I love dearly my Pākehā side as well, like obviously my grandma. And, um, you know, we sat there, oh, you know, for most of, my life, we'd talk about her father and her grandparents and their story from that perspective. And so I've, what, what I think often tends to happen is that the privilege has always sat with Pākehā and things have been taken from, from Māori. Mm. And so I feel that majority of my time is spent reclaiming uh, not just for myself, but for this industry that I'm in, that I find myself in, for my whānau. And so there's more to fight for and there's more to, um, I guess, try and bring, not bring back, but to try and bring to the fore because it's always been pushed, you know, into the background or it just has never been given a chance to breathe especially in my industry. Yeah, and, and and you shouldn't have to, right? Like, that's the thing. It's this sort of extra labour that you're doing on top of. Um, and certainly it probably doesn't help when people like me, you know, say, this is what you're all about, because it can, <laughs> it can kind of cast a bit of a tokenistic lens on things when really it's just inherently who you are. You're multifaceted. It's one part of who you are, as you mentioned. You've got your Pākehā side and your very, you know, treasured grandma as well. Mm. It's quite complex. Yeah, but it's the story of many. Yeah. Many, many. And I think that I, I feel very lucky and privileged to be in this position to be able to make change. Like, I, I feel very, very privileged to be able to go to work every day in the space that we have, um, to work with the people that we've brought into our our, our work tribe you know, um, the industry's been built uh, with a particular infrastructure for the last 40 years. And when I came into it 13 years ago, I was like, ooh, this is awful. This is just crikey. This is so gross, you know, like how people treat each other. Mm. Um, the, the silo, just these silos of of people and businesses and lack of community, yeah, I right. guess. And in and, and all honesty, like lack of Māori. Even now, we um, we had a hui with Kahui Collective, and I went around the tepu, and I was like, "How many active, like you know, full time Maori fashion de- designers do you think there are in the world?" And we were at a stretch, thirty, right, in the world, and there's a reason for that. And so, if we look at the history of our of our industry, it wasn't one that tried to help people come up because there was, I guess this fear of someone else taking yeah. your market 
or being better than you and, you know, whether it was money or ego that couldn't cope with that kind of competition, um, it just, it, it held the New Zealand fashion industry in a certain, like, like, you know, holding position for all of these decades. And so when I came in, I thought, okay, the best way to flip this fashion industry on its head is to do everything opposite. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, everything opposite was very Māori. Yeah. And so we just did that and we got shunned. We weren't, you know, no one would stock us in there or wholesale us. What reasons did they give? Oh, there was all manner of reasons. Some of them were really straight up, which I appreciated, to be perfectly honest. Um, we got our first stockist in High Street. We were, like, high-fiving each other. Uh, we were so stoked. We, were, we had a lot of moments where we thought, yes, we've made it. <laughs> and they were, like, when I think about it now, ridiculous. But um, we had the stockist, and we were only there for two weeks, and oh. one of the other designers went to the owner and said, unless you remove that Maori designer, we're pulling our wow. uh, label, and we will encourage the other well-known labels to pull their label, and you need us. So they let us go. And I mean, they were very, very, bl I use that, I use that um, example quite a lot because it was just very blunt and, and very and, blatant. And a lot of people would probably be surprised to hear that. So surprised, like so surprised. That's disgusting, honestly. Yeah, and then media, you know, media didn't want to have a bar of us. So there was a certain like uh, process and system within the fashion industry that you had to go to, go through, sorry, Yeah. if you were to be considered successful and that was... You were in the right magazines. Mm -hmm. You were at the right events. You were selling in the right places. Um, you were friends with the right people. It was just awful, so gross. And we were like, I don't want to be any of those things. And media wouldn't touch us anyway. Um, so, and when they did, it was always like some kind of derogatory kind of, you know, rags to riches story right. or just down and out, but, yeah, we're giving the poor cousin a bit of a hand here. But, you know, it was really the narrative was pretty gross. Hey, I want to talk about um, – I want to actually go <clears throat> right, right back because we did talk about your studies um, at, at MIT and I want to talk about – it's almost like this uh, legendary failed assignment because <laughs> you, you failed an assignment but then you took that piece and you showed it and you won an award for the piece – and I just think it speaks really interestingly, particularly in the creative arts, about subjectivity and, I don't know, I guess having tenacity. Because if it were me and I failed an assignment based on something that was, you know, something I'd created, it's not it's not a matter of, um, you know, two plus two is four and there's a right answer and there's a wrong answer. This is someone's cast an opinion and a judgment on your work that you've put your heart and soul into and has a lot of meaning to you. And they've gone, no, that's a fail. To then take that and go and enter it some, you know, and put it on show. There's something in that. <laughs> There's something um, in that. Well, I'm still very good friends with my tutors from back in that day. <laughs> do you still, do you sort of lord that over them a little bit? Like, remember you All the time. The great yeah, coach. totally, totally. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> I love that dig. Um, that reason, yeah. Uh, but I, I have a lot of respect for both of them, Kim Fraser in particular, because I, I literally left school in seventh form or year 13 to go and study under her then fell pregnant and, you know, the rest is history. But I, she found me and she said, we're starting this, you know, fashion and design course at MIT. I want you to come. And and she literally is the reason that I went and studied. So um, I think the issue back then is that they were still 
trying to figure out how they were going to deliver this program, like the whole faculty was. Right. Uh, and, you know, Kim and I have often had these kōrero, and then Deborah Crow came in as well, who's also just an extremely talented um, textile weaver and, well, creative um, and person. And a lot of it was theory-based, which just like, oh, God, <laughs> I was like this is so boring. I just want to make this thing. And they're like, no, you have to explain why you want to make it. What is the story? What is the origin? How have you developed it? It's really important that you, you know, create this design development process. And I just thought it was absolute bollocks. But um, I still use that design development process now. So, you know, there was a lot of really important learning that was done in those early years and, and from those two amazing women and other tutors that were there, Lisa Rehana, Arnold Manaki Wilson, um, uh, John Pule, they were just like, we were very, very lucky uh, to be a part of that that early stage right. of Z block. They called it Z block at MIT because we were being taught by um, all manner of nationalities of well-established um, artists and creatives. So, yeah, we were very lucky. You talk about your tutors and your, your lecturers um, about that. And even when, you know, when you talked about, you know, you're going to make your kids do full immersion, there's this wisdom that comes from experience. So now you're, you're you know, I don't want to call you old, <laughs> but, you know, you're further along in your journey. You've had a lot of experience now, and that's the sort of wisdom that you're now able to impart. I honestly think, um, no, that I lived with blind optimism yeah. for literally my entire life. I feel I'm a little more, <clears throat> I don't want to say cynical, but aware of things now. Um, but probably right up until maybe five years ago, I just absolutely blind, blind optimism. And I had this dream for, you know, this thing that we were still working on and still working towards um, that I just 100 percent believed in like I just knew I knew in my heart of hearts that it was going to happen it just was going to take a lot of work and it would probably just be me doing it for a long time and so I just um committed to that and I think once you commit to something and you make a decision and you you start doing it you know you kind of forget about the challenges along the way just get it done do you think you would have um gotten as far as you did without that blind optimism though and no you, yeah if you doubt um this thing that is driving you if you doubt it in any way I mean there were times when um we did ask ourselves if we were doing the right thing of course but never to the point where we were like we're gonna quit yeah right. we're gonna give it up we can't do it we just can't do it like go get a nine-to-five kitty yeah <laughs> that never happened I think we probably thought about it a lot especially when things are really really tough and even now they can get really tough. Like right now I feel um, there's just, there's literally not enough hours in the day. But um, there's, you know, entrepreneurship is, um, there's a lot of luck, belief that goes into it. Um, I guess madness, you know, like when people don't have reference point, when you're trying to explain to someone over and over and over again what you're trying to do, but there's no reference point of it because it's never happened before. Um, that can get really hard really fast. 
And I just got to a point where I was like, I just don't care what other people think. We have to do this. Let's just do it. We'll see how it goes. Oh, it's been so, so great talking to you. I know that probably in many of these interviews, people are talking about Beyonce and <laughs> the Obamas and all that. And, you know, that's not um, to be discounted, those, those sort of very mainstream recognition of your work by having them worn by, you know, really exceptionally famous people around the world. But for us today, it's been about getting to know you. And, mm, thank you. And your work and your um, and what makes you tick, really. Um, and I just want to hark back to Grandma yeah. for a moment because I said we'd come back to Grandma. Um, it's obvious that she's had such a big impact and she's no longer with you. I'm really sorry. Um, but if she was here... What do you think she would say to you? Oh, you know what? She'd just be so stoked about that MNZM. Oh. She was such a royalist. Like she would just, <laughs> she would have been over the moon about that. Like, yeah, she would have been absolutely, I, I think she'd just be so thrilled. Yeah. And at Tiahuru Moorway, we have like a little space where we have her sewing machine up. That's the sewing machine I learned to sew on. And we have this whole tribute to her and uh, her memoirs is, is by there and her original cottons and bobbins and quick unpick and everything are, are on there and I've been wanting for years to have a space where I could have that out so that I could just do a nod to her for you know for the inspo yeah for being a great grandma oh, <laughs> so important um we'll just finish off with um with this question because you mentioned before that you are you you have you, you know you've learned a lot of stuff and you hope that with everything that you've learned you might be able to make the path easier by giving some advice from what you've learned so i just want to invite you to kind of look back at a time perhaps um before you started the business or even before you went to MIT um what would you say to yourself what would you say to yourself about what lies ahead even when i was a young person i Again, I'm not very good at explaining this, but I always had this belief that there was something big that was, you know, in my future or in my next step forward or whatever. And I didn't know what that was. And I knew it was going to be around creativity. And I knew I was a hard worker and um, I just didn't know how to pull it all together for a very, very long time. And I probably, if I was to give myself any advice back then, it would have been to um, not underestimate myself. It would have been to start earlier, like just go, like, yeah, <laughs> retrospect, you know, yeah. <laughs> such a wonderful thing. But I also am very, very um, conscious of the fact that every single step that was taken in that journey was necessary. Mm -hmm. Every hardship, every whatever was necessary. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing right now. Yeah, so I'm 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 quite grateful for all of the failures and all of the challenges because those are actually they shouldn't be, but those are the biggest drivers. They're the biggest learning points, and yeah, they're very very valuable. Billy <laughs> Nathan, I hope you know your value. I hope you appreciate <laughs> your value and never forget it. You've made such an impact in your industry and beyond. And um, you're going to continue to do so, which is really exciting. And I think that yeah, you've just provided a, an excellent example to so many. And the work's not done yet, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> this is Kiwi. This is Kitty Nathan. This is Creativity. Thank you so much for joining us. Namahere, Takumihiki, Akwe. 
the Spin-Off Podcast Network.